I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. I pay homage to my teacher, Lama Karma Sonam Rinchen, also known as Lama Michael. To my teacher, my teacher's teacher, and all the lineage back to Dorje Chong, my own awakened nature. I offer gratitude to the abbots of the monastery, to the priests, to the residents, to all the Sangha community here, and also those who came from Zoom. Thank you. I remember when we used to do long retreats and my teacher knew he had a way of sensing when we were all tired. And our teachings go on sometimes two hours, three hours, four hours. And so sometimes he would come in at night and secretly I would feel like, oh. So I was his attendant, so I would go and take his things and I would walk in and think, okay, okay, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. And sometimes he would reach inside his pocket and he would pull out a little piece of chocolate on the way into the shrine room. And then he would hand me the chocolate and he would look and he would say, for others, <laughs> for others. <laughs> and then because I think he could feel that we might be a little bit tired, he would do this very special kind of teaching, which is he would tell us a story and the story was always wonderful, and the story wasn't something you had to remember, but the story always had good dharma here and there tucked in the corners of the story. So I remember a lot of these stories, and I love these stories. So that's one tradition in the lineage of teaching that I have. So today I thought, because we've all worked so hard practicing, and I know that some of the people at home also have jobs and you've been homeschooling your children and you know it's kind of the end of that long week and the start of the next one so I thought maybe we could have a story today with a little Dharma tucked here and there in the story. So one of the traditions that I love so much in the Tibetan tradition is the tradition of the Ganda Chakra, the Sok. Sok means coming together gathered together, it means. And so part of the tradition, or one of the traditions that soaks, is that yogins like us, like you and I, ordinary people, some of them secretly great beings, maybe those were the ones who looked the least like the great beings, men and women and old and young and people of all shades and people of all trades, beer makers and uh, scholars and all these people up in the mountains doing retreat, and on certain times, like full moon or other times, they would have a prearranged time, full moon, quarter moon, half moon, different soaks for different times. And they would come down out of the caves and off of the cliffs and out of the jungle. And they would meet and they would do different things depending on what soak it was. But the general nature of soak is, first of all, to heal and atone for any mistakes that we made during our retreat. Especially in our tradition, of course, it started with the guru. So if you were grumpy and you thought bad things about your guru, why did you 
make me do all these bows and I'm in a cave and it's wet in there and I don't like that very much. You would make atonement for those. Also, if there was any riff, if before you went into retreat, you had said something unkind to a Sangha member, you just owned up to that at the soak and there was a time to ask for forgiveness for that. And then we shared a meal and the meal always had music and the meal had prayers and the meal had ritual and it was a very beautiful time. We did many of these soaks on the three-year retreat that I did and they were the only time that we really had sweets or a little something, the kitchen would send in something. Sometimes in our soak we had, once we had one apple. That's all we had. And so I remember Jane, the woman, who was the last year and there were only two of us left in our cloister. And she said, Lake Shea, we only have one apple for soak. And I said, what should we do? And she said, cut it up. And so we did, and we made it really beautiful. We had, we had some flowers, and so we put flowers in a bowl, and we made this beautiful thing. It ended up being an offering like this, but it was just one apple. So you use what you have. So these yogins and yoginis would come out, and they would get together, and they would practice together, which was not really... It had the feeling of a party to it, but it was really about understanding when you're in your cave alone practicing, you're always practicing with others, always for others and always with others. And so I thought that here, since we're about to have lunch and since people at home maybe are also about to have lunch, you could think of that lunch like a soak a way to celebrate. And some of you weren't on the retreat, but I can tell you for sure that you were here with us while we did our practice and you had your own practice, even if your practice was feeding your children and going to work and marching and showing up for the world. This is all practice. All beings are always on the path. No one is ever doing anything but on their way to awakening. So the feeling of a soak is that you start with offerings. So on retreat, we would stay up the night before and we would make cakes. And depending on how much flour and butter we had at the time, we would cook it up and we would make a little cake, maybe about this big. And there were always at least two cakes, a red cake and a white cake. So we'd make those cakes and then we would make big bowls of ice water and we would put butter in the ice water and let it sit for a while so it got kind of hard and becomes like clay. And then you make jewels for the cakes. So we have cakes with jewels and your hands got so cold and they hurt down in the ice water. But also there was some pleasure and satisfaction in trying to make the most beautiful cakes that you could because this was practice and also because this was expressing gratitude for your practice. I went to Tibet in 1979 and I saw some of those offering cakes and it is so cold in certain parts of Tibet that the butter polymerizes. And so 40 years later, you still have a cake and it's still on your shrine and it looks perfect. It's like a Twinkie, nothing happens to it. <laughs> it's something very nice. The word Vajra means indestructible. So our tradition is called the Vajrayana and it's really referring to the nature of mind, but also sometimes apparently it refers to cakes. 
so when you start the soak, you do some ritual, and basically in the beginning of the ritual, what you acknowledge is that because of our practice, and actually even before our practice, we were awakened beings. And as we do the practice, we come to recognize, to acknowledge, and to own the fact that we're awakened. And then in gratitude, and for some other reasons, you make these offering cakes. And so the first offering cake is the smaller one, the red one, and the drupan, the Vajra master, stands up, and she says, and this will, if you are thinking now of the Mahasutra of entering the gates of Vaishali, there's talk like this in that sutra. It's a little different. But in this case, we say, we raise up the cake and we say, this is not just this small cake, but this is everything you want and need, everything you ever wished for. I offer that to you, and we don't decide for you because it's filled with wisdom. It's whatever you want it to be. And we recognize that some of you are very mischievous, and some of you can't help yourselves, and you're part of our community, but if you're here, you'll create bad karma for yourself. So we ask you now to leave this place and go just right out there. We'll see you from the window and we put the cake out there, and you have your feast there so that you don't create any further difficulties for yourself and for others. And after this service, we'll all rejoin. And then the other cake is offered to various deities and spirits of the land. And sometimes there are many cakes. Sometimes there are 15 or 20. It goes on and on and on like that. So I would like to offer you cakes. Torma means to discard completely, to discard, ma is a feminine particle, so to discard lightly, but completely. So I offer you torma. Torma really then, we could say it's an offering cake, but it's also a thought, an idea, or an aspiration. And so I offer you the torma, of discarding or laying down anything that you've done in all of your lifetimes, birth after birth until now, or even in this very retreat, you can lay that down. We can take that out in a gentle way. This is both atonement, it's also emptiness practice. And then, like you always do on retreat, I imagine food offerings for you. And since we're offering food, I think we should offer candles. So I fill the sky with candles for you. And they're just the candles that you love. And these candles are meant to remind you of your wisdom, your inner wisdom. And they shine with equanimity as we practiced all week on all beings. And I offer food, every kind of beautiful food, and I offer you Dharma texts, and since we're here at Great Vow, I think I will offer you Zen texts, and I will wrap them in beautiful brocade. And the way that we say this visualization about the texts in the Tibetan tradition is those texts are written in a single stroke brush, a single hair paintbrush in silver moonlight. And that silver moonlight is the bodhicitta, the light of bodhicitta. 
And those texts, the ones that I offer to you, they're over here in the visualization, they, they self-recite. So they emit rainbow light, and while they emit the five colored lights, which are the five wisdoms, so we're all getting more wise as we enjoy this offering, then they murmur the Dharma. So the Dharma is all phenomena. Dharma means the teachings of the Buddha, but it also means all phenomena. And so they murmur the teachings themselves, which means always the universe is teaching us, teaching us, teaching us. And then I offer flowers, sky flowers, because in Tibet it was cold and not so many flowers grew. So the Tibetans, I suppose, used their imagination and they made flowers. And since we're making flowers, we don't have to limit ourselves to marigolds and glads and carnations like we get at the florist shop. But we can imagine wild, fantastic, beautiful, all kinds of flowers. And we can have as many as we want. We can fill the whole sky. And so I put those there for you too. I'm remembering the offerings. Water of the eight qualities, totally pure drinking, always fresh. This fulfills your thirst for the Dharma. Bathing water. So any impurities that you might feel that you have, these are confusion actually, but this water is offered so that you might feel as though you have cleansed and given up those impurities. I have to remind myself of flowers, dupe, dupe, the sweet smell of dharma, and also discipline. May your discipline be complete and unflagging, not because you're using a kind of force in the dharma, but because of bodhicitta, because of seeing the suffering of the world. As we learned in this retreat, your heart is broken open and you have what the Dalai Lama called transcendental impatience with the suffering of others. And so the practice is effortless for you. That discipline just arises like smoke arises from the incense. And the air is filled with the sweet scent of Dharma for you. And like all scent, it doesn't just go to any one person. It permeates the environment. Light, we said, thousands of lights, your own inner wisdom. Massage, yay. <laughs> Massage is the well-being of the body, wellness of every kind. So we ended our retreat every night with a song, and one of those is, may you be healed. So this is really that wish. The mudra for this is this. So beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Massage. Food, beautiful food that fulfills the hunger for truth and music. I love the music. And the music is another reminder that the Dharma is self-manifesting. So what it is that we need to know is always presenting itself and always in this beautiful way, which can be heard by each person in accordance with their wishes and in accordance with their abilities. So then we sit down with this offering the soak, and first, of course, we offer this to the deities, the spirits of the land, to our teachers, our lineage, our ancestors, our parents, our family. We offer to everyone else first. And then, you know, because it was yogans, I've thought about this a lot, they brought to the soak whatever they had. What do you think they had in their caves? A handful of lentils, 
a handful of rice or millet. It was small. They didn't have, you know, today when we make a soak, uh, everybody chips in $5, $10 that we run down to the store and the natural food store and we buy things and we divide it up and everyone gets a bowl of beautiful, organic, gluten-free, vegan whatevers. <laughs> but that's not what you had if you were a yoga in the mountains. So they brought their lentils and they put it all in a big pot. And so I visualized that big pot with all of the offerings that each of you bought to retreat, your uniqueness, your diversity, your kindness, your impatience, your failure, your success, everything that you brought, everything that makes you you, we put together in the big pot of our retreat and we cooked it up, cooked it up. And then there's a point in the visualization when you're cooking up this soak offering that you put the syllables, the sacred syllables, om, ah, hum, above the pot. And these syllables, which are red and white and blue, dissolve into light and dissolve into the pot so that the food offering is imbued with enlightened mind, which means that no matter what anyone brought, no matter if it was something very fresh picked from the ground on the way down the mountain, or it was something slightly moldy in the back of the cave because it's all you had, your old rancid yak butter, and you put all those things together. But because we bring enlightened mind, because that was cooked into the recipe, you will love it. And whatever you get, you will have, you will receive with contentment and equanimity. And the beauty of equanimity is that we bring no attraction and no aversion to what's offered to us, whether it's a food offering from the soak or something that someone on the street says hello. We just receive that with pure and open heart and pure and open mind. And even if we feel aversion, we just see and we notice and our heart is big enough always to hold all of truth, which always has a this and that, a sorrow and a joy, a wisdom and an ignorance. And we're totally big enough, especially when we're coming from enlightened mind, to hold all of those things. So we cook, we cook that in so that whatever we've got is perfect as it is. There's also a drink at the soak. And when we cook that drink, we also use the wisdom mantra. And so the drink, the thing that satisfies the Dharma is our thirst for the Dharma that quenches our desire and our other obscurations is always perfect, exactly what we need. So when our teachers give us a teaching, whether we like the teaching or we don't like the teaching, we say the teacher is just a mirror. They're never reflecting themselves. They're always giving us exactly what we need. So when we look at the teacher, what we see is ourself, our nature, both pure and impure. And we get precisely what we need to move out, whether we see that for a second or an hour. So in the middle of a soak, so you pass out whatever food there is, sometimes it's an apple cut in half, sometimes it's mountains of offerings. Benefactors during the retreat would send things in sometimes. So at Christmas we had baskets and buckets of beautiful cookies and all kinds of things. And we always made small, small bowls at that time and sent the rest out. 
for the staff and for other people. And when the food comes out of a soak, we say it's uh, prasad, which means it's blessed. What that really meant to me was that it's sent out with our aspirations for our own awakening. And so we share those aspirations. And if there's any fruition from those aspirations, we also share that. So people will eat prasad in countries uh, in Southeast Asia. It can be moldy. It doesn't matter if you carried it home in your backpack back to your village and it's moldy. I've had prasad that looks like it might kill you, but I always eat it anyway. So we pass out the offerings. And then on retreat, we did a beautiful thing, and this is traditional in a soak. You stop, and before you eat, you remember who it is. So remember, this is a gathering of yogins and yoginis. They're getting together. They've been practicing alone all month. And you refresh your memory. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? And usually the way that we did that on retreat was we had what you call a merit list, a prayer list. And that prayer list, one of the things that I learned on retreat, this will make me cry. It always made me cry on retreat. People trusted us with their prayers. People said, why would you do a retreat? You're alone for three and a half years. You're not helping the world. But when you read a prayer list and you realize, I trust you with my mother's passing. I never felt alone, never. I never felt that what we were doing was for ourselves, not ever. So we would read these prayers and soak days were one of the days where we could kind of go at our own schedule. There we, the soap took three hours or four hours. They would say, well, if you wanted to skip dinner, you could take six hours. So sometimes we did that. And there was always a little bit of a holiday, maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes. You could do laundry or sleep or whatever you wanted. <laughs> so we would then pass out that food. And before we ate, we would take out the merit list and instead of just reading it, which we did every single day for over a thousand days, we would stop and talk about those people. Who is this Serena Smith? Someone put her on a year ago. And we had written always why the person was on there. And then we would say, who is that person? What do we know? Oh, well, Jane, my uh, retreat mate, would say, well, in year, she did a one-year retreat before she did the three-year retreat. That's the kind of devotion she has. She would say, well, one-year retreat, she had this health problem and that health problem. And so this is probably related to that. So we would tell the story of each of the people and actually remember them. And we always made a shrine for those people. It was very beautiful. So then, after those people were in our minds and we remembered that we practiced for others, then we had a snack. So in the old, old days, that took hours or even days. On our retreat, because of our retreat master's retreat master, we were taught to do it one bite, no attachment, put the food down and continue your practice. 
So then we would do some more practice, offer gratitude for the privilege of coming together, for the privilege of practicing in the olden days together alone, together alone. And then we would seal that practice with prayers of auspiciousness. And so as I visualize a Gana Chakra for you and a Sok for you in my heart, I make prayers of auspiciousness. These are called Tashi prayers. And they go on and on and on and every kind of auspiciousness. But basically, I think here I once heard it summarized as, may your life go well. So this was my Dharma talk, but that was the story. And now I have to tell you, this is the first time I've done a Dharma talk, and I don't know what we do at this moment. So thank you, Lecce, for that lovely, inspiring talk. We do have a few minutes if people have questions and would like to ask Lecce to respond. Having done some shorter solo retreats, <clears throat> I've always seen them as just working on myself so that I can take that work back into the world. Yeah. I see like a direct connection and we thought of it that way as Right now, as I'm in my cabin in the woods, <clears throat> this is actually for everyone. But it sounds like what you're saying is, the whole time you're there, it is a, an offering to everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. Since there is no self and other, if you practiced for self, even not aware then you were by nature practicing for everyone. But because we're on the path of bodhicitta, then that path is the path of love and service to others. And that path is the means by which our practice ascends or progresses, which is to say we couldn't do that path without others. And so we could say we perceive others as the benefactors of our practice. We literally can't progress without others. And so in this last retreat, as we looked at the four immeasurables or the four boundless qualities of the heart over and over, we used others in our practice, right? I had an, an interaction, I didn't, but <laughs> let's say I had an interaction with Rai and I felt in that interaction vulnerable and so I saw my heart close so that makes Rai the benefactor of my practice. It also makes Rai one of my teachers. And so in our tradition, we give offerings and gratitude to teachers. So when I notice the heart close, I say thank you for that. And so those things which we would ordinary, ordinarily construe as failure, the heart closing, 
then in this, and I think this is actually a very Mayana thing, we train so that those things which used to be throwaway things or things that we would hide and sweep under the carpet, hide from ourselves and hide from others, become a light switch that's flipped. So when I feel contraction, I notice and I offer in gratitude the opportunity for having noticed where the edge of my practice is. There's also practicing for others because as the heart opens, one possible natural response is to to really feel the suffering of the world. And so then on a day when you feel like, I'm fine, my corner of samsara is really pretty good actually. I feel that often at the monastery, like it's all good here. Uh, But then we can remember, we can extend ourselves. It isn't all good for all beings everywhere. And so we practice. And also maybe an acknowledgement that it is enormous. I talked the other day about the four thoughts that turn the mind. And the first was precious human birth. It is an enormous mountain of privilege to be born into circumstances that we can practice the Dharma. First of all, you have to be born and you have to have the karma. You can be born as a god, but as Hogan taught us, Uh, last week, there's not much motivation to practice in that realm. You can be born in the hell realm or an animal realm, but there's animals are too dull to practice. They can't hear and understand much or all the Dharma. The hell realms, you're just busy running for your life, putting out the fire, hopping over razor blades, mountains of obstacle. And so we practice because we realize Not everybody else can. And so if we can, we should practice and pray really fervently that those people who have all been our mothers in some previous lifetime, have been our lovers, have been our friends, have been our family members, that they might also one day have the conditions to practice the Dharma. And by doing that, so there's another great example of how others are our practice, benefactors of our practice. When we make those wishes for others, we have put virtuous thought into our mind. And that plants seeds then for the ripening of virtuous thought, body, speech, and mind arising. So again, others have been the the benefactors of our practice. And the other reason, and this is, uh, this is just a kind of enlightened selfishness, is that when we practice for others, we're never ever alone on the path. And the path can be kind of lonely sometimes, can it not? It's hard sometimes. And so then we think, okay, today I get out of bed you know, this early hour, no coffee, whatever it is that you don't like to do, feet on the cold floor. Today I do that for others. So again, they become our benefactors. Yeah. So, Koshu, before we start, since you're the Tenzo and you would know the answer, how much time do we have in this assembly? (laughs) 
We usually end around 12.15. Thank you. <laughs> um, this is directly re related to your last response. Um, I'm just remembering you mentioning how reading the merit list and being entrusted by people um, to care and directly help in that way. I'm wondering if you um, have any practical advice for people sitting at home in quarantine struggling with feeling open-hearted or connected to other, um, to, to other people. This was mentioned during our beginning instruction time, so I was wondering if you could directly respond to that a little bit more. Yeah, so let me be sure that I understand your question. So you're wondering if I can say something about people sitting at home who might feel not so connected Yes, and not, and um, just more along what you were just talking about, how how my pra alone practice is benefiting others. Yeah, I'm just just trying to draw a connection between someone practicing at home and you on your retreat, but having that very strong merit offering. Yeah. So many ways that can happen. I'm what I'm remembering. Kosho is. One of my very first Dharma, well, who knows what one's first Dharma experience is, but one of my first experiences with KCC and the community there, which was a very long time ago, was that my son, who was maybe six or seven years old, was suddenly very ill one night. And we took him to the doctor and they said, well, he's a child and it's probably a tummy ache and he's complaining. And I said, I don't think so. I've never heard him complain. And so they said, oh, just, you know, go home and check his fever, that sort of thing. And so the next night I came home from work and he literally was crawling up the stairs. And he said, Mom, I need to go to the hospital. And so, of course, I put him in the car, I took him to the hospital. So long, long, long story short, uh, the doctor walked in after three and a half hours in the waiting room and picked up his little foot and went smack and he on the bottom of his foot and he went, ah, and he said, I think it's an appendicitis. We'll do a test and he'll be in surgery, I'm pretty sure, uh, within minutes from now. So you just sit down here and we'll be right back. I was terrified, terrified. So at that time, let's see, we had been in the United States, so my husband spoke very little English. My children's father, my husband was uh, from Nepal, from a little village, never been to school, super smart guy, really amazing being, a bodhisattva really, uh, but didn't speak much English, so really I had to navigate this thing on my own. And he also, at that time, because he didn't speak much English, uh, had a very kind of low-paying, blue-collar job, and so he had to go to work. But this was at the time when hospitals made the policy, just beginning the policy, you could sleep in the room with a child who was in a kind of dire state. So I did that, and one of the things that happened for me was people from the Dharma Center came, and they just checked in. They couldn't come in the room, but they would peek in and they would say, hi, my name is Peter and I'm from the Dharma Center and I just want you to know I'm praying for Jens and I'll be praying until you come back to KCC and say he's okay. 
And that just happened, it happened. And then there became a little pile of teddy bears and other little stuffies outside the door. And I had not had that kind of caring support before. It was quite unique in my experience. And so many times when uh, I was in his room and so worried, really, he was nine days in intensive care. He couldn't eat or drink. I remember the day he was going home, he was walking down the hallway and he had his IV behind him and his little hospital gown, which was wide open in the back. And he went by the nurse's station and by that time he's a very social guy, he made friends with all the nurses and he pulled that little IV cord behind his backside and he said to the nurses, kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. <laughs> and the nurse said, guess who's going home tomorrow? But what sustained me from that very sad and scary time between the time of kaboom, 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 was knowing that someone somewhere was caring. And they were caring for our family and we were strangers. And that was just really incredible to me. And so it opened something that I had to look at. Was it possible that this idea of being connected was true? Was it really true that people somewhere could be caring? I didn't even have the idea that it might make a difference between the actual outcome, his being well or dying. I didn't have that much faith and confidence then. But the idea that somebody somewhere, including you at home, would be praying for the well-being and making aspirations for the well-being of somebody you never met and might not ever meet was completely heart-opening for me. And so I don't, I, I don't even consider it a step down from showing up in person. It feels to me that we can always play that role of, because we aren't really... Sorry, my nose is running. I think we're not supposed to use Kleenexes in the Zendo, but visiting tradition, you know. <laughs> we're not nearly as refined. We're not really, well, we are and we aren't. We aren't really creating those connections. We're acknowledging the connections that are always there always there. So anyway, when you stay home and you acknowledge tendril, it's called in Tibetan, doesn't that sound like tendrils that come out from pumpkins? T-E-N-D-R-E-L. And it means the true connection that's always there because of the interconnectedness that I taught about the other day. So we can acknowledge it or not, but in acknowledging it, it becomes more true for us, not because it becomes more true. It becomes more true in our experience. We begin to live the truth. So anything that we do to open to the experience of what is true, impermanence or selflessness or interconnectedness, anything that we do to open or to include into our experience those truths 
strengthens our dharma, strengthens and expands our experience until finally I think we hold the whole truth in our heart. It's simple. You know, I mean it to be a simple thing. Uh, I had two kids, I had two businesses, I had a husband who didn't speak much English. I didn't have a lot of time to practice for a very long time. And so I'm a firm believer in what can you do in one breath. So if you're home and you're busy and you're homeschooling and you have friends who have COVID and you're making macaroni and cheese for the lady next door, there's always time to practice little something like that. These are not unimportant. All of those things together are a very whole, very alive, very real practice. And those of us who are here, we can do it 24-7. We have no, no movies to go to, no, <laughs> no libraries, no shopping. Thank you for your questions, so uh, helping me to think about the Dharma, precious Dharma. <laughs>